You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Let me introduce myself to some of you. My name's Charlie. I'm the lead pastor here at Gateway. I've been on sabbatical, my wife and I. Uh, the first time that we've done something like that. Um, since 34 years, 1988, I took my first full-time ministry position. And, uh, and so it's been a while. And um, we didn't realize probably how tired we were until the extended break. And um, I haven't fully been able to process all of what that has meant. But one, I want to say thank you to our staff. You know, anytime a member of the team is missing, no matter what part of the role of team they have, when they're missing, somebody else has to pick up the slack. And so I'm very appreciative of the men and women of our, of our pastoral staff team that picked up the slack. Um, especially thankful to um, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Harry, who um, preached in this Roots Renewal series. I had told Pastor Harry, for 15 years, to always be prepared. You never know when you need to preach. And he found that out hours before. One of our guest speakers was, family was sick and had to head back home. And literally, he leaves at 3.30 a.m. Sunday to drive back home to take care of his family. And, uh, and, and it took 15 years, but, but Harry had to preach on a moment's notice. And I appreciate that so very much. Um, while we were gone, we worshiped in a number of contexts and why it's always a pleasure to worship, regardless of the context you find yourself in, there really isn't anything like worshiping with family and friends. Uh, when I first started out in ministry as a single student pastor, I was lonely. I was away from my college friends. I was single. And I sought out the counsel of another single student pastor that had turned highly successful. successful. And I went to see him one day, and I asked him, I said, how do you do it? How do you, how do you keep from being lonely? Um, and he said, listen, if you stay, if you commit to stay somewhere long enough, the people in your church will become your friends and your family. Not long after that, I meet Gina, we get married, and about four years later, we settled in Atlanta at the church we had before we came here. And uh, in 13 years there, that group of people became our friends and our family. And now coming up on 15 years at Gateway, literally we've served longer here than anywhere else that we've served. In fact, coming up pretty close longer than anywhere I've ever lived before, even, even New Jersey. And um, want to say that you have and are our family and friends. And the challenge really I make to you in all of that is if you also stay somewhere long enough, the people around you will become family and friends. Look, I haven't met a family yet that doesn't have some level of dysfunction. Right? Right? So, so when, you, when you start thinking about the, the mix of families in a local congregation, there'd be some dysfunction. Right? But when, when, when they're your family, you're the only one that can point that out. Right? Anybody else points it out, they're going to have a fight on their hands. It is, but it's good to be home with you. Let me take a moment for the second sermon before I get to the real sermon. I, again, because I haven't preached in six weeks. Um, speak a little bit about Russia and Ukraine. This happened when I was gone, and I've um, been processing it. Um, 
Each day I would wake up and I would open my news app on my phone to, to see, well, really a hope that something would have ended, right? I mean, every day there was this new hope that something would have ended. And what we found is something escalated, right? Almost every single morning when I would read the news. Um, about um, some of you, I don't know how many of you will remember or even know what the Cold War was. I was a teenager in the Cold War. Um, the, the implication of the phrase is that people just didn't talk to one another, right? And that's not really the case. I, I actually was pumping gas during the gas shortage, shortages in the 70s. I, I recall the, in New Jersey, we had odd and even days, meaning if the odd the number that your license plate ended in was an odd number, then you could only buy gas on the odd days and even and I and I was pumping gas during those days and I recall like that was the cars then literally you filled it from the back of the car so you pulled the license plate down that revealed the filler pipe and so I, I I'm plenty of times someone tried to manipulate their license plate to get gas on a day that wasn't their day there was minimums and there was maximums of what you could buy on those days and gasoline as well um, NATO comes out of the Cold War, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, on the other side, the Warsaw Pact comes out of um, the Cold War. The, the United States um, forming a, a group of people on a treaty that were democracies that wanted to promote freedom. I think some of the history that gets written gets rewritten around blaming the United States for colonialism. And I, you know, every government has its weak spots, right? I'm not claiming that our government is God and everyone else is not. But it was this commitment to, to freedom and, and, a, and a core belief that we were created by God. Um, and then so, so much came out of the Cold War. NASA even comes out of the Cold War, right? It wasn't this great desire for exploration of space. It was we believed that if Russia got there first, that we would be in trouble militarily. Cold War was the United States um, not wanting to see the expansion of uh, communism and the, 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 the USSR, the, the, the communist perspective um, was we, we will never agree and it's not good enough to agree to disagree. Um, so in 1991, though, I remember watching on TV the Berlin Wall coming down. I've actually touched a piece of the Berlin Wall, which was the separator. It was a symbol, but it was a separator of East and West Berlin, and it was a separation of freedom and communism, and it was that symbol, and when it came down, the Cold War then, it disintegrated, if you will. Um, what were, you know, there was flare-ups, you would see flare-ups, and especially in the Middle East, other things, there were proxy wars, if you will, and the, it, but there's always kind of been this polarization, and that's kind of what we've entered back into. Um, this, it, what, what we find is the, the, the world rises and falls on leadership. And depending on who, who the leadership is at any given time is where we start having these kind of things. Here's what I wanna tell you. But all it, although it appears as if everything rises and falls on leadership, what we know by scripture is all leadership has been placed and given authority by God. That is a tough Christianity 400 level kind of course, right? To understand and, and still have questions about how things play out, but to understand that there, there is 
No leader gets put in power without God's ordination and direction. And that he's working towards an end that you and I can only see from a distance. And so I wanted to bring at least four things to you about how to approach this time, especially if, it's, if this, is a, this is new for you. This is, this is your first trip around this mountain of, of kind of, of world conflict. The first is to don't be afraid, but be ready. Revelation 22, 20 and 21, the last two verses of scripture says this. He who testifies to these things say, yes, I am coming soon. That's the words of Christ. Amen. Come Lord Jesus is the response. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. These two verses actually got folded into the Eucharist liturgy of the early church where they would be receiving communion and someone would say, speak on the behalf of Christ in this, in, this, in this case and would say, yes, I am coming soon. And then the body, the group would respond by saying, amen, which means so be it, come Lord Jesus. Right? So, so even, even back in the first century, there was this, this, this longing, this, this uh, being able to depend on this promise of God. Yes, I am coming soon. So be it, come Lord Jesus. And then the grace of the Lord Jesus be with his people, amen. Don't, there's plenty to be afraid of, I understand. But it would be more important for us to remain ready for the return of Christ. I mean, you know, every person from, from the disciples on believed that Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And I've lived, I remember, I remember so many sermons in the, in the 80s particularly about end times and read more books than I care to remember on Ed Times. And although the information was good and it's accurate in the sense of, of its evaluation of world times and the like, I'm not sure it made me more ready. I think it made me more fearful. Now that might have been just my take. And so I'm not saying don't get lost in the prophetic, I'm just saying get ready. Don't, don't let, don't let the, the prophetic drive you as much as what I've always believed. And my mom, I mean, my dad died at 70. My mom died at 58. Their parents died around that time as they're younger. I turned 58 on sabbatical. I thought it might be on sabbatical. It would go away. It didn't. I had the birthday. Um, so, so I understand that whether or not God's return is imminent or not, mine, my end is, is in sight, Right? And so you want to be ready, not afraid. The second is to keep kingdom working. Keep kingdom working. So it's not we keep the kingdom working. We want to keep working kingdom stuff. John 9, 4 and 5, Jesus said this, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. God has wired you specifically, and he's placed you... Um, very judiciously, where you are in your sphere of influence. You and I have the same calling. We have different arenas. And that is to work while it's still day. There are people need to know that Jesus is the hope of the world. And so in this time, I don't want to be afraid. I want to be ready personally. I want to be ready for the return of Christ. And I want to keep working the kingdom for Christ. 
The third thing I, I wanted you to know is that we is a great time to pray for the salvation of many. Genesis 50, Perry, <coughs> Pastor Harry preached the sermon, the, the renewal sermon on Joseph. Genesis 50 carries Joseph's story. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They had ill intent. And yet Joseph rises to the leadership of Egypt and ends up saving his family. His family's afraid on their being reunited with Joseph because of their deeds. They knew their deeds were evil with evil intent. And here's how he responds. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many. What's going on in Ukraine and Eastern Europe is not a good thing. But God can turn those things for the salvation of many. And that is what we should be turning our attention and prayer towards. It, it is probably one of the two tangible things you and I can do about this crisis. The last is to give to the needs of others. In Corinthians, there's a big section on generosity, but I honed this part out. Paul says, yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. So Paul, Paul's ministry wasn't to, to the, the, the Jewish nation. His ministry began to the Gentile nation, the surrounding nations of Judaism. And then when he, but when he would found a church, he would make the, the needs of the Jerusalem church known from them, the poverty that was among that group. And he would encourage them out of their generosity. Some had a lot, some churches had none. And it's interesting, the churches that had very little gave the most. But there was a giving of offerings that Paul would take back to Jerusalem. And some of what it was saying is, thank you, thank you for birthing us into your, and taking us into your nation. Right? But they were supplying the needs of fellow believers. And so what, what we have kind of tried to rally around isn't just normal humanitarian work, which is a, obviously a necessary response. But the Church of God, we're not an independent church. We're part of the Church of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee, and there's actually more members outside of the United States than there are inside the United States. I have 12, 14 million members of the Church of God, and like seven or eight are outside of the United States. And so there's pastors, we have pastors and churches in Ukraine that's been relocated and, 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 and um, you know, trying to get, help the pastors and those congregations survive and get out, and that's what we're giving towards, all right? So if you care to participate in that, that's what, that's what that's going to. It's going to known entities on the ground, believers, not that you can't give to everybody, right? But I mean, believers trying to help them, believing that they're, they're the church, they're the church in crisis, meaning they're actually probably reaching their friends and neighbors, right? I mean, if something happened here, you know, you would be doing that for your friends and neighbors, right? We would, be, we would be the church there. And so we're helping them still be the church there, even in their disbursement. So... So that's, uh, so that's that. I, that's the second one. Now for the main one. So that means this one I can take longer. This one is the sixth episode, if you will, of Roots, Stories of Renewal. I promise you before I left that as we went through these stories um, that you would hear your story. 
that somewhere in these stories of renewal, you will hear your story and maybe renew you or just affirm the, 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 the powerful impact of the gospel in Christ to renew your story. We went through the genealogy of Christ. All of these figures came out of, comes out of the genealogy of Christ. So we've done Abraham, Ruth, Joseph, David, Solomon, and today I'm going to do Rahab. Now, um, one of my friends here saw that I was speaking on Rahab today and thought he saw me say rehab, and he said that explained why I was gone for six weeks. <laughs> With friends like that, what does the statement go? With friends like that. Um, so I want to introduce Rahab, though, but I want to introduce you to a little bit of the genealogy because um, Rahab's story, I'll tell you this later, I think I might have told you early on, but you probably forgot six weeks ago, our renewal is not just about us. Renewal happens out of our renewal. Okay? So here's the little tidbit, Matthew 1, 5, and 6. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Why is it important? Why is genealogy important? Why is this genealogy important? So all the Gospels write to a specific audience for a specific purpose. That's why we have four of them. Okay? That's what distinguishes them. Some of them tell the same stories. Yes, they do. But they're writing for a different purpose, for a different audience. Matthew writes to the Jewish nation to convince them that Jesus comes from the kingly tribe of Judah, from the line of David. This is, this is one of the big ticket items in his gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is king. He is king. So this is why we're getting really, really close to kind of, kind of the, the iconic, you know, um, patriarch, if you will. It's not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but, but David was a key central figure in the Jewish identity. And so we're very, very close. When we talk about Rahab, we're very, very close to David. Four women listed in the genealogies of Christ. Please don't shoot me, ladies. This was custom then, not, not now, but the genealogy were tracked through the men. And with that, though, we list four women. Tamar, who Pat, uh, Dr. Walker was coming to speak on Tamar. He was, when he got sick, you missed Tamar. I'll get him to bring it back around uh, some, maybe sometime this year. Uh, Ruth Jameson Creel, a missionary to, to now Turkey, or to, to Greece, um, he preached on that one. Um, maybe Ryan, I can't remember, did you touch any on Bathsheba at all with Solomon? And uh, David, I'm getting a thumbs up. So then I get the last one. I get Rahab. The reason why I believe these four women are listed is because of any of these stories, they demonstrate renewal. I mean, you know, when, when, when the angel comes to Mary and, and says, hey, you're going to give birth to a son. He's going to be the Messiah. Her response would be a normal response, right? She's a teenage girl. She's saying, how is that possible? You know, I'm not married. I'm a virgin. And the angel gives a very, very telling answer. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, nothing's impossible, right? So our stories, it's impossible for us to renew our own stories, okay? It's not humanly possible. We, we can add periods and move on, but we can't do transformation. And some of you may be in a place where you've put a period to a part of your life, and you've put a period to it, and you've tried to move on, but that, that part of your life is still very, very defining of who you are and, and still limiting who you are. 
God's, when God does a renewal, it's, it's not like a fresh coat of paint. It's, it's a whole new home. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't erase our past. He transforms it and fills our past. He makes it purposeful. He alone is the only one that can redeem old stuff that's in the past to make it new stuff for us now. And with these four women, there was, there was, there was no possible renewal method outside of the grace of God. And so I think that's why one of the reasons why we have them listed here. Rahab, one of those, one of those four. Um, the transformation, here's something I wanted you to know. The transformation of your past is just the first part of your renewal. Okay? The second half is a fulfillment of your God-given, God-prepared partnership for the future. Okay? So he renews it, he brings new life, he puts those bones back together, those tendons, those muscles, and then you go, Whew! but that's only part one. Because our renewal is going to also have a renewing purpose. Rahab's, introduction to Rahab's story is some of the richest um, dramatical pieces of scripture. Joshua chapter 1 kind of begins our introduction into Rahab. Um, Joshua 1 is like, this is the perfect coach's halftime speech. Joshua 1. I mean, Joshua 1 is one of those fire you up because he repeats, God repeats to Joshua like four or five different times, be strong and courageous. And, you know, just kind of, after a while, you just kind of, kind of rev yourself up to strong and courageous. But Joshua 1 begins in a completely different spot. Joshua 1 begins with, Moses, my servant, is dead. Thank you. Thank you for that announcement. Moses, my servant, says, why is that significant? Joshua grows up under Moses' leadership. He, I mean, Icon of icons, right? He, he was front row seat for all the amazing things God did through Moses, including standing at the Red Sea and the winds begin to blow all night and the seas part in the morning and they walk through. He gets to see all of this. Now, it's, it's, I think he got accustomed to being number two, right? I mean, that was a great place to see. But now it's time for him to be the leader. And so God begins, hey, Moses is dead. It's your turn. That's why he has to tell him five times, be strong and courageous. Because <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, we're at the same place we were 40 years ago. 40 years ago, we overlooked a body of water, and there was Canaan, and here we were, and we didn't get there. Now it's 40 years later, and now you're saying it's my turn. Be strong and courageous. So Joshua learned some things um, for Moses, but he was his own man. So like Moses sends 12 spies to check out Israel. He sends a committee. Don't send a committee to do anything to accomplish anything. He says, good, I'm not a lot of church people in here today. You would, if you're a church folk, you'd understand that. Don't send a committee to do anything. And so you send 12 people, send a committee to come back. Two say, yeah, we can do it. Ten says, no. Right? Joshua was one of the ones that said, we can do it. They don't end up doing it. Forty years later, we lose all of the parents of that generation. And now standing, look, standing on, ready to go on this side of the Jordan is a bunch of newbies being led by a newbie. So Joshua, this time, he says, no, we need the intelligence. But I ain't sending 12. We're not going to take a poll. I'm not going to go to each tribe and take I'm going to send two people. So he sends two people. Somehow, which we don't know, they cross the Jordan at flood stage, these two, and they enter into a city named Jericho. 
Jericho was the first city. It was the gateway city to Canaan. You don't get to Canaan. You don't get to the promised land without going through Jericho. Jericho was a specialized city in the fact of how it was fortified. Right, so it had walls. No big deal. You had walls. Think about walls wide enough for someone to live in them. And that the, the, the patrolling of the city would, could be done by chariot on top of the wall. Okay? So it was a very strategically placed, well thought out wall. Hey, this is, this is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to set it up. And those two spies then enter, enter this city, probably close to nightfall. They couldn't have gone in after nightfall. The, the gates would have been locked. So they enter into the town square sometime late afternoon. All of Jericho knew that Israel, another army, was just on the other side of the Jordan. They would have seen the river itself and their walls as their two main protectors at this time. But they knew that they were coming. And I would guarantee you that they knew and they were looking out for any strangers that would enter the city. And so when these two guys enter the city, though, there's a woman named Rahab, and she's identified as a prostitute. That she sees them come in, and she goes and meets them and takes them to her home. Interesting twist here. Was Rahab just doing her normal thing? In deeper study, Rahab probably wasn't just a prostitute herself. It's very possible that she ran a group of prostitutes. Another interesting thing about Rahab is we find out later that she has a mother and a father living. She has brothers and sisters living, and they probably have children too. And yet, and yet she is the one who looks out after the family. Why? What possibly could have happened to where this oldest child, female, of a family assumes the role of provider, what had to have taken place for that to be the case? And what she had at her disposal is what she ends up turning to on how she supports the family. I don't read anywhere in here, and I haven't been to any career fair that had prostitution as a potential career choice. Why do people enter the profession? Could it be in some cases, and maybe a lot of cases, there seemed to be no other way? This decision wasn't made for me, or I didn't make this decision. It was made for me. This is what it is, so I'm making it, and I'm going to live with it. I've made it. I'm going to live with it. I'm going to make this happen. When she sees these two, Is she really just after two more marks or could be something bigger at play? Everybody knew they were there. Rahab was a survivor. I think what the story bears out is Rahab sees an opportunity to get out of the life that she's been dealt. Shortly after she takes them to her home, the king sends men to get them. Which means someone else noticed they entered the city. But when they went with Rahab, it would have been easy for them to dismiss this. Oh, we don't have to do anything right now. They're with Rahab. We know they're going to be tied up for a while. I'm not trying to be crass, right? This is, this is what they had to be thinking. So they had time to go tell the king, hey, 
boy, something's up here. These two people around the city, we may be closer to fall than we think. And so, but they're at Rahab's house. Good. All right, go get Rahab. Rahab would have been tolerated. Her business would have been tolerated, but she would have never been welcomed into society. Okay? She was part of society, but she would be on the outside of society. Hey, but go get Rahab. She'll cooperate. Well, what Rahab is doing is she hides these spies, anticipating someone's going to come to the door. They come to the door, and she says, Oh, yeah, they were here, but they left. And you really need to hurry because if you don't leave right now, you're going to get caught by the gates. They're going to close and you'll never catch these two and we'll never know what Israel's plans are. You better hurry. And man, they, they took off. There was no way. There's no committee. There's no vote. Well, they took off. They took off. Gates closed. Then she goes up and now she's going to do her bargaining. She had learned how to bargain. She goes up, but it's very interesting. She's not just trying to get a way out. She says, I know that your God is Lord. Now, this is a significant statement because every people and every town, every city would have had their own gods. And anytime there was any kind of conflict, whoever's God was the strongest wins the conflict. They knew how this is, this is how this would have worked. And she says this, everyone here knows of what your God is capable of. We know about the Red Sea. So the thinking that this Jordan River at flood stage was somehow going to be a deterrent to God, to Yahweh, they weren't all that confident because a Red Sea did not stop God moving forward. This river, sure as heck, ain't going to do it. And she tells them, everybody's afraid. The intel that they would have wanted like they would, Intel would have, you would have wanted, where, how are they strengthening their positions? Where is their vulnerabilities? What is the attitude of the people? This was stuff that they would have wanted to know as spies. And she tells them, we're all scared to death. Everybody's shaking in their boots. They, they know this is inevitable. And then she says, I want you to assure me that me and my family, me and my family survived this. Spies say, your kindness to us will return to our kindness to you. You got to do three things. One, you can't tell anybody we were here after we leave. It's pretty good, number one, right? You, you can't tell anybody here that, that we were here. Got it. Number two, you need to hang a red cord outside of your window because there's not going to be any other way. I, I don't think anybody knew. I would guarantee that no one knew how God was going to deliver the city. So you would think the city would have to be delivered home by home, right? With what's been called urban warfare. Well, the only way we're going to know what home is your home is you have to identify your home by this cord. And we'll know that you are to survive. Oh, but listen, if you have any family members outside of that home, we weren't going to know it. They have to be all inside your home. Deal. She lowers them down, they go in the wilderness, they wait, they get back, they tell Joshua everything, Joshua's good to go. Then you get Joshua 2 and 3 and 4, and it kind of takes you through uh, a few other kind of scenarios of, of um, purifying the army, and then it comes time to take Jericho. Well, I learned, I learned the song as a kid. It doesn't make much sense from a strategic standpoint. You would have thought that everybody was ready to fight, right? They had seen their families you know, cower to this, every man probably was right. They wanted to fight. And God's saying, no, that's not how we're going to do this. One, this city is my city. It was the first of 10 cities. There would be 10 cities that have to be taken in Israel. This was the first one. We know throughout scripture that the first always belongs to God. 
and I'm telling you, sidebar, until you learn this as a follower of Christ, I think your growth in Christ will be truncated at some point. The first always belongs to God. And when you give God the first, literally a tithe means a percentage. It means, it, it means 10%. When you give God the first, then he does more with the 90 that he allows you to keep than the 10 that he asks for you to return. Okay? And so all was devoted. Everything was supposed to be destroyed. Don't understand that. It's a, it's a different era, right? And then all the gold taken to um, the temple. But we're not going to take it. We're going to walk around the city, and we're going to wait. And the next day, we're going to walk around the city, and we're going to wait. And on the next day, we're going to walk around the city, and we're going to wait. On the next day, we're walking around the city, we're going to wait. The next day, we're walking around the city, and we're waiting. And the next day, we're walking around the city, and we're going to wait. You know the people inside Jericho, they, they, I mean, they don't even know what to do, right? The seventh day, we're going to walk around the city. Seven times, we're going to shout, and God's going to do what God's going to do. And literally, archaeology demonstrates that the walls of Jericho went outward, not inward. Archaeology demonstrates this. Which means no outside force broke, their, broke in. God broke out. But interesting enough, he decides to destroy the walls of the city to expose it to a nation except for one part of the wall. One part of the wall that has a cord outside of it. It stands. They would have been in that room, in that home, with everything falling apart all around them. And they might have lost a dish or two off the wall. But it stood. It's amazing story. Your kindness for our kindness. And, and after all of this drama, it's amazing that this is how chapter 6 ends. So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. End of story. We spared Rahab. Rahab's here living among us. Rahab wasn't just trying to save her life. She was trying to change her life. How do you know that? Because she doesn't set up shop in the new country. It wasn't like she said, well, well my, one my first location of business is closed. I'm with a new set of people. I'm going to open a new location in this new place. No. No. This is what indicates to me she's not trying to save her life. She's trying to change her life. She's not just bargaining um, her way out of one thing for, for another opportunity. She sees that this God, this is the life this is the life that's offered. The collapse of the walls of Jericho grab all the headlines and all the, the songs. Joshua's courageous leadership is heralded, but Rahab's story keeps telling itself over and over and over and over again. Look, because there's more to this story. Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Christ. Joshua is not. That's just, that just says something to me. Joshua's not, he's, I mean, good, central part of scripture we have in the Old Testament. He's not in the line of Christ. But really, a random prostitute from a defeated nation, she winds up in the genealogy of Christ. That's transformation. Um, so what happens? This pagan prostitute stays around in this new family, in this new tribe, in this new nation long enough 
and she marries a man, a Jewish man. That's amazing. I mean, I'm sure at first they were like, hey, it's Rahab. We know her story. That's cool. That's a whole different thing than at some point in time, a man approaching Rahab and wanting a family. And his name was Salmon, we're told. So Salmon and Rahab marry. And they have a son, and his name is Boaz. Boaz, they raise this man. Now, you would have, if you were here when Jameson was preaching, we get introduced to Boaz. So to rewind a little bit, this woman named Ruth gets attached to another woman named Naomi. Naomi leaves Israel because there's a famine. And she goes with her husband and her two sons. But years later, she returns and her husband is dead and both her sons are dead. And she had two daughter-in-laws and one stayed and Ruth comes with her. Ruth's kind of iconic statement to, to Naomi when Naomi says, no, you stay here, you stay here, you stay here, was no, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Now here is a foreigner woman, single, returning to a nation or going to a nation she does not know with no prospects of anything with her mother-in-law who has no prospects of anything, who walked away from everything to leave, and she comes. And I think Ruth is a survivor too because we learn that Ruth begins gleaning in a nearby field. So, so if you owned the field or if you're a worker in the field in this century, you were, you, were, you were taught was mandated that you leave some behind so the poor could come up behind you and get enough to survive. Boaz, Rahab's son, shows up at his field one day and notices the foreign girl in her field. Now, I think it might help that she's pretty, apparently. <laughs> but, he no but it's interesting, what the story says is she sa he says, who is she? She's Ruth. He knows Ruth's story. He knows Ruth is taking care of Naomi. He knows of her tragedy. He knows she's from another country. She knows she has no protector. He knows she has no future. And he goes to her and says, hey, you stay close to my girls. My guys will take care of you. No one will touch you. You stay here. You do this. Now, let me ask you, who better to recognize a foreign woman without a future than the son of a former woman who had no future? Your renewal matters to you and your family. Nothing could matter more. But it doesn't just matter to your family. Renewal is something that gets given over and over and over again. Rahab, a single prostitute from Jericho. Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as um, this hall of fame of faith where the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to talk about the icons of the Jewish heritage faith and how they, they, um, they latched onto a promise that they never fully received. I mean, it is, you, you read it and you go, wow. And in that, Rahab is listed. So Abraham's listed. 
and Rahab's listed. And it's interesting though, this is how this is how the Hebrew phrases it, or the Hebrews writer tells it. Come on up, team. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Because by faith, by faith, her action, her action was rewarded as a faith action that brought righteousness to her and then to her family. James, Jesus' brother, writes this in his letter. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave logic to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? I find it fascinating that they don't run away from the fact that she was a prostitute. But it no longer is what defines her. It is what frames what God did from her. Here, that was my point early on in the message when I said, listen, you can put a period in your life sometimes and try to move on, but God's intent for you is not just to help you move on. He wants to reframe and renew everything inside of you. And that's what makes Rahab's story so special. And I couldn't help as I wrote this and prayed through it, that do, do you find male or female, do you, do you find yourself in the position of Rahab? You have had to make certain decisions in your life and certain choices in your life. Maybe you haven't had to make them, maybe you didn't make them, but you inevitably you, you kind of felt like that you didn't have a lot of choice and you just kind of ended up where you ended up. And you tried to kind of put periods and move on and maybe you've been good at it, maybe you haven't, but it's, it's, it's like that one thing still kind of seems like hanging over you. And Rahab's story is for you. And God isn't gonna erase that past. He's gonna take that past and make something great and new out of it. Renewal. Only something he can do. You've tried, you haven't been able to do it. It's humanly impossible for us to change our story and bring life to it. We can do our best to make the most of it. But that's, that's the extent that we can go, is making the most of it. And God is not, he, he did not send his son to die on a cross for us to make the most of the life we have left. He came to give us new life. Fresh life. New life. More and better than we could have ever thought or imagined. That's his intent with renewal. So I think this story kind of leaves us in a couple positions. Positions that I want you to consider. One, you might have heard the story of Rahab and just went, yay Rahab, I'm glad I'm not Rahab. For you and still all of us, I think there's a, I think there's a Boaz challenge in this. The Boaz challenge is not to see people through their circumstance. You have no idea why and how that circumstance has played out for them to be in that position they're in. We have no idea. We don't know the story. So will we see them as being raised by people that's used to just going this? Or will we be raised by someone like Ruth that taught her son how to look beyond circumstance? big deal that when we carry as believers we carry in our hands the life-giving message of Christ 
and we carry his love in our hearts that when we embrace someone that has been expelled, wow, renewal already begins to seep into their life. And then when we, when we tell them that it came from a heart that was raised by Christ and not just from altruism, that's significant. So that's the Boaz challenge for each of us. And then there's a Rahab opportunity. How, how I, early on in, in January, I preached, I said that renewal is something you can't achieve. It's something we receive. We receive renewal. We don't achieve renewal, which means that we have to posture ourselves to be renewed. So how do you do that? Now, as I look through Rahab's story, how did she do that? The first, the first thing I believe that, uh, that Rahab, Rahab did was she kept hope alive while she survived one more day. She, she had to do. The day required her to do what she had to do. She did what she had to do. But she was able to keep doing that, I believe, because she kept hope alive. Because I think that's what leads her to these two men. She sees these two men and she sees this as her opportunity. She had survived the day before, looking for a way out. She was surviving this day and finds the way out. You gotta do whatever you can do to live this day. But when you see hope come, the second thing she did was she made a decisive move. In harboring those spies, she had chosen a side choose a side how could she make that choice so quickly because she knew that the choices she had behind were dead choices it's easy to make a new choice when you know the other one's already dead and I will assure you a life outside of Christ is a dead choice it will continue to decay because it stands on nothing stands on only what you can produce in any given day when we stand on Christ, the solid foundation that he offers and the way forward are unmatched. I believe if you're listening today online or you're watching this archive or if you're in the room and, and you find yourself a, um, somehow uh, gravitating or, 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 or identifying with Rahab's story, I believe you survived another day looking for hope. So hope's here, choose a side, make the move. The last thing she did, which, which is, I really, really love, is she put down roots. When she made the choice and decided, she just said, these are my people now. These are my people. And I, I, I can't remember, sometimes I get mixed up what I say when I say, I, I might've said it in here, right? Every family has a dysfunction. Was it, was it in this service I said that? All right. So, so it's easy, to, it would be easy to look around and, and, and uh, or, you know, I'm not saying that you have to land here, but my, my point is we have dysfunction because we're a bunch of families together, right? There's, it just, it just, it's just part of the business, which is, you know, meeting new people and doing new things. And, and you might've carried some pain or some hurt in the past because somebody at some church did something that you're still holding on to. And that's just people. It's just people, all in varying degrees of having their life transformed by Christ. I used to say this when we first planted. Give me enough time, I will disappoint you. I'll do it. Why? Because I'm human. But don't let some individual or some bad experience stand behind, 
stand in front of you putting down some roots around some people that want the same thing you do. We want the life that Christ has and we're willing to slug our way through it. We're willing to, to, to come to one's aid. We're calling somebody out. We're, we're willing to do that and just live with the mess that exists when a bunch of different people are trying to chase after the same thing. And that's the Rahab opportunity. See this as an opportunity today. Make a choice and decide to put down some roots. So the moment, you know, the way we normally end services around giving you an opportunity to respond, um, to move. And we have communion that's offered to my left and right, the receiving of the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ symbolically in representing the juice and the bread that's given for our redemption. And it's good to remind yourself by taking of that communion, you're welcome to do that and you're open to do that. The other is you can come to the altar and confess, surrender, see the opportunity, make the change. Pastor, you don't have to come up forward to do that. No, you don't. But by, what I found, again, movement matters, is when you come, if you come down front and pray with someone and leave, the enemy can't get in your head saying that really wasn't anything and that was just in your head. And so, you know, movement matters with that. You may have other needs and you can come to the altar and someone will pray with you, but um, always remember movement matters. Stand for me for, my prayer here is not a conclusion prayer. I want you to respond. We're going to worship, um, but it is kind of my concluding prayer over you today for the message. Father, I believe that your spirit has birthed this message. Lord, I believe that you, that the passage out of Ezekiel on the front end was to to confirm and to, to give forth word that, that you want to breathe life into us. And Lord, I pray for the person who has dry bones and an empty spirit, Lord, that this would be their opportunity for renewal. And then they would not let this moment pass them by. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would have the eyes of Boaz, that we would not see people in their circumstance we see them in need of your freedom that we can freely give. Do a work in our lives in these next few moments, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.